our God, the Ancient of Days. There is none before him, none like him, and as an expression of the biblical basis of that hymn, we turn our Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. Uh, as you turn there, I just I want to mention that we are uh, thankful this morning as Gary prayed for our elders. We're thankful to have two of our elders uh, today in Montreal, Quebec, visiting uh, with Quentin Bernard and their church plant in Montreal. I had a chance to talk to those men last night, and uh, they are encouraged and prompted in their prayer for the church plant that's happening in Montreal. Montreal is a post-Christian culture. In other words, it was intensely religious until about 40 years ago, and Montreal experienced what's known as a silent revolution. No shots were fired, but a revolution against religion has been practiced uh, for at least 40 years in Montreal. And uh, um, they are there and will be traveling late tonight to get back, but they'll carry with them news and a report about the church plant that's happening. So we're thankful that they're willing and able to be there on our behalf today. Exodus chapter 19, verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Raphidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord came to him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, And tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people. For all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down to Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether that is beast or man, he shall not live. 
when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people, consecrated the people. They washed their garments, and he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Children, you can be dismissed to children's church. We will be in consideration of the entire chapter 19, but I want to leave verses 16 through 25 to read later. What we just read is the statement, God gives his law to Israel. God gives his law to Israel. That's what chapter 19 is about. And there's one particular emphasis in Exodus 19. It's God. God gives his law. Our God, the ancient of days. Our God, I want you to, I want you to mark this statement. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Our God, in whom there is no shadow of turning or change. Our God gives his law to Israel. And what we're going to read here, especially in the verses I haven't yet read, tell us about a God that sometimes conflicts with perceptions that are common, especially in the West. We, we struggle to even get close to analogies or types of what God is like in our culture. In a democratic republic, there are no monarchs, kings, elite that are set above us. There are elected representatives of the people for the people. And so we struggle, even in our political structure, to comprehend what it means to have none above and none beside him. It's just a, it's a bit of a weakness. If I may, if I may pick just a moment at a a particular song that I, I personally have enjoyed the melody of, but it might accidentally, I'm trying to be really gracious with whoever the songwriter is, I don't know, and I'm trying not to be critical, but, but I think it's an example of what could become an accidental expression of our domesticating of God. And that's that old hymn, which I I do love the melody. I come to the garden alone. And the voice is so sweet. We walk together and we talk together. And the dew is on the roses. And isn't it wonderful? And, And that is a pleasant hymn. And it is a pleasant expression of what it's like to have intimate relationship with God. But it omits the ancient of days in his true nature, in his revelation of himself. So, chapter 19, God gives his law to Israel. The title I'm giving for this is The Mountain of God. Exodus, again, shows us that it, it's a bifold narrative. In the first fold, the first half of Exodus, it's all about rescue from forced service to pagan nation. 
And then the second half is all about proper service and orientation to God by keeping covenant. The Bible tells us here in verse 1, three months have passed since they left Egypt. They're fully separated. Uh, I would commend to you perhaps a study in Scripture of threes. I would commend it to you. Maybe you would enjoy it. Uh, There might be something to be said about a type in Scripture of threes. It typifies or it's typical of separation. Uh, Just a couple examples. The Trinity, uh, totally separate holy Godhead. Uh, Abraham goes three days when he's going to offer Isaac. Christ is three days in the grave. Here they are three months removed. Uh, We find that there's a three-day consecration. If you enjoy that sort of stuff, have fun. Three months have passed, and now they find themselves standing at the foot of a landmark that is referred to as the Mountain of God. The mountain of God. At this place, they will be marked by explicit instruction for their holy relationship with holy God. Verses 1 and 2 are a sort of poetic introduction to this covenant holiness. The third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. On that day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There, Israel camped before the mountain. The chapter is, it's probably, um, I want to say this in way of warning without discouragement. This chapter is probably three sermons. I know you think, well, we've heard you say that before. And and it probably is three sermons. And there are so many really important things that could be fleshed out. Like, for instance, the second part, God is going to introduce his covenant as a conditional covenant. And I would love for you to know exactly what it means that God's Mosaic covenant with the people is conditional. If you do, then I will. I, I would love to take time and talk just about that point. But I... I'm going to get through chapter 19 in one sermon. But it is going to break out in three parts. The covenant call of a loving God, the response of the people to that call, and then ultimately their meeting with God. First, I want you to understand that the covenant call of God is a loving call. And we're going to talk about that as we get into Exodus 20. And we see God lay out instruction for his people. I think sometimes we might be tempted and therefore prone to think that the instruction of God for his people is oppressive. And I want to emphasize the fatherly nature of guarding commands. And then we see the people's response. The people's response. In eager enthusiasm, they say, everything he said we'll go and do. Okay, we've read past this point. We know how nearsighted that confession is. But then, they have a meeting with God. What is a meeting with God like? So those are going to be the three. His loving covenant. Their response to that, love, and then 
the meeting with God. Let me pray for the preaching of his word. Father, would you bless the speaking, bless the hearer. All of scripture is, is full of instruction for life and godliness. All of it is working to sanctify your people. It is, it is truth for every area of life. And so listening to it requires a discipline and an attitude of submission and attention. And so I pray for all of us as listeners to your word. In Christ's name, amen. Let's start, verses 3 through 6, the covenant call of a loving God. The covenant call of a loving God. First of all, verse 3 lays out this way. What I want to do is I want to give you verse 3, which is going to tell us kind of the big picture, the big point. Like if, if you were to say, what's the point of 19? It comes in verse 3. And then verses 4 through 6 is going to basically lay out what is the covenant. Like, what's it like? Everything that's going to happen after this, all the way through the rest of Exodus and into Leviticus. What's it going to be? Okay, so verse 3 tells us the big point. 4, 5, and 6 tells us basically the outline of a covenant. Verse 3, Moses went up to God. God spoke aloud to him, saying... This is what you will say to them. Go tell them. Okay. What you have is a a pattern called synonymous parallelism, which you don't need to know that, but that's telling us what's happening in verse 3. God goes up, or Moses goes up, God speaks to Moses. Okay. Moses goes back, Moses speaks to Israel. Okay. Synonymous parallelism. In the middle of that, there's one word saying. God said. That's the nature of the Mosaic covenant. God said. Okay, verse 3. Verse 4 through 6 really tell us what is a covenant. The first, in verse 4, there's a sort of preamble. Everything we're going to see from Exodus 20 to Leviticus 27 That's a lot of the Pentateuch. And it's summarized in verse 4 and then 5 and 6. Verse 4 is the preamble. Look first. It identifies the parties, you and I. God says to Israel, you people and God are going to enter into relationship. This is the preamble. Then there's a preface. You know what I did how I delivered you and carried you on eagle's wings. So he says in two parts, I brought you up out of Egypt and then I gave you wings to fly away from that captivity. And then he says, the intimate nature, I brought you to myself. And in this covenant language, we start to see there's this sort of intimate marital picture. I came to you and brought you to me. And then that's the preamble. And then verses five and six. And this is the part that I want you to understand. We use language like covenant when we talk about redemption and when we talk about Sinai. 
And we have to be careful to know that, yes, they are definitely both covenant, but one is better. Hebrews says one is better. I'm going to talk about Hebrews when we're done today. So when we hear this intimate binding together of a people, it's important for you to see that this covenant is an if-then covenant. Now, if you obey, verse 5, my voice and keep my covenant, it's followed by some sanctions. Then, out of all the nations, you will be a treasured possession. If you, then you will be. If, then. And there are two important things about God that we see in this sanctioned promise. First, we see the clearest statement in all of Scripture up to this point of monotheism. Everything that is in the earth is mine. God says, I'm not sharing possession of all created things with another deity, but I am the only one who all things belong to. And then secondly, and this one I think is more specific for us, as we think about what it means to be the people of God. Although God is creator and father of all people, he announces here his intentions to mark one specific group of people as his treasured possessions. All the earth belongs to him, yet in all of that, this people would be treasured if then. The people who belong to God will be specific people. They will represent him to the rest of the world. So here's my question for you today. Here's my question. I I think I need to say this is an extremely relevant question right now. So if you're wondering, like, why, why am I here? What's he lecturing about? This is the part that I think starts giving us really specific instruction. How are the people of God to represent God to the rest of the world. You're going to leave here and you're going to go be the church. And how did he instruct his people here to represent him to the rest of the world? Well, we're going to see that Israel is to be an example to the people of other nations who would see their trust, their faith in God in action. Second, Israel would proclaim the truth of God and invite others to believe it. So, be an example, show it, proclaim it. Third, Israel would preserve the word of God as it had been given to them. So Moses is writing the Pentateuch. Moses is writing down what God has said. And you and I, are the beneficiaries of reading what Moses wrote. And then fourthly, take a little breath. I want you to get the fourth one. I, truthfully, I want you to get all of them, but I don't want you to miss the fourth one. Israel, the people of God, would intercede for the rest of the world by offering acceptable offerings to God and minimizing 
the divide between God and man. And here, here's what I want to say, really boots on the ground for us. One of our operations as the people of God, as the church, we see the people of God called to something here, and people of God are still called to something similar, is to offer acceptable worship to God and functionally minimize the divide between holy God and fallen man. Most broadly, and for most discussion, that means there is a sense that we are meant to soften the rebellion that exists against our Creator. We are meant to plead for the rest of this creation. To be a sort of ambassador, not just from God to this world, but to be a people who cries for long-suffering mercy. To be a people who exhibits the sort of worship that perhaps, Lord willing, tempers the rebellion that exists. Lord willing, I would, I would add practical point to this. There are, there, are a, there are a handful of things as a pastor that I try to gently insist on in your day-to-day life. This would be something I feel like it, it gets into that category. On April 4th, we will vote for a Wisconsin judge. And I, I would insist that you be ready and that you cast a vote when the time comes. You'll, you'll have more information available to you in the church foyer in the next coming weeks, but that's on April 4th. And as I think about interceding in this world in a way that offers offering to God and minimizes the divide between holiness and rebellion, I think of things like electing a judge that will preserve, preserve the current abolition of abortion in the state of Wisconsin. I, I think that's part of this. So please mark your calendar for April 4th. Now, that's big picture. That's, that's broad conversations. Most specifically and, and really unmistakably, minimizing the, vi- the divide between God and man is most vividly seen in the God-man coming through the seed of women, right? So we do this work of not only spiritual worship offered to God and this tempering of blatant rebellion against God, but we do this work of being fruitful and multiplying. And through the generations comes Mary's offspring, Jesus, who minimizes the divide between God and man. This conditional contract is set in the unconditional covenant with Abraham. This covenant, if, then. But do you remember, do you remember the covenant God made with Abraham? When he made promises regarding the offspring, who Israel is, do you remember Abraham's condition during the covenant? There's no explanation to Abraham, like, okay, Abraham, if you, then I will. It's, it's not present in that agreement. In fact, God just knocks Abraham out. 
And then God promised that all of the earth would be blessed through the descendants of Abraham. That is true in Christ. Therefore, Israel does minimize the divide. First, God gives this loving covenant invitation to the people. And then we see next, the people hear about it and respond. Let's look now in verses 7 through 15. The first thing we see in their response is unified confession. Moses comes down from the mountain and relays to the people what he's just heard from God. Moses spoke it plainly. He didn't want to misrepresent what God had said. So the Bible says he summons the elders of the people and he set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. And then verse 8. And the people said, all the Lord has said, we will do. So they know it's conditional, but they think they can handle the condition. Moses then goes back up the mountain and tells God what the people said. Moses, back and forth, back and forth. Uh, Maybe you ask a question, why does Moses have to keep running back and forth? Like, can't God just say, hey, everybody, this. He tells Moses, Moses goes back. Then God heard what they said. He's not up on the mountain. What? Right? He heard them. So what's with the back and forth? Well, Moses is an important type of person in the Bible. He is this appointed representative. And God is going to make a really, really big deal about appointed representatives in the gospel. So Moses comes back, and the formality of the whole process kept the people reminded that they were not only dealing with the elders or Israel, but they were dealing with God through his representative. So they first give this unified confession. Then, verses 9 through 15, they make themselves ready. I wonder what your readiness would be like right now. If I said, all right, Tuesday, it's a big day. Uh, God's going to be in the room here. And he'll, we'll hear his voice. We'll see his presence. And he's got some things that he wants to uh, establish between us as a church and himself. So between now and Wednesday, make ready. <laughs> Where does it even start? Well, for this narrative, the first thing they had to do was symbolic. They said, clean yourself up. You're walking around here in the wilderness, and you need to know that God is purely holy, and so if you're going to come anywhere close, do laundry. Really, do laundry. Which, honestly, took a serious commitment. They have very limited water coming from one spot, the, the cleft of the rock, and so there's water, we assume, still flowing from there. We don't know how much production of water, but we know that this great number of people just doing laundry probably required a lot of attention and discipline. So he says, make yourself ready, because I'm going to come and speak to you. Consecrate yourself. To symbolically make yourself acceptable. Symbolically, please, understand symbolically. Two days, and then get ready for the third. The focus that God required was to take time and to have the right attitude. The Lord will come down on Sinai. Verse 10, 
on Sinai in the sight of the people. They could expect a revelation. They had seen him in the pillar. But this consecration suggests that something especially awesome was to be done in the sight of the people. And look, consecration was serious. It wasn't an option. Clean yourself up. Make yourself ready. Abstain from physical sexual activity. Get ready, because look at verse 12. A warning of capital punishment. If you come inside the set boundary, you'll die. And you're not just going to die. You're going to be stoned or shot with an arrow. Because no one's going to come in and get you. So there is this separation, verse 12 and 13. The people are consecrated. Now this means, listen, listen closely to this, friends, because this, this is a teaser to where we're going to end. The whole group of people, they get to come closer than they've been before. To what is more awesome what we call Shekinah glory, than the pillar. And they get to come as close as is set. Okay? Don't come closer than that. You will die. Okay, okay. That's, that's pretty amazing. But I want you to understand that they get to come closer than normal, but not anywhere as close as those people who are with the Lord today in heaven. So something better happened than consecrating ourselves so that we could have access to the Father. Okay, verse 14 through 15. Moses comes down from the mountain to consecrate the people. The formal sign of consecration were limited to getting physically clean and abstaining from physical indulgences. Washing clothes. Can you imagine the laundry? The work. Standing in possibly lines waiting to get to the water. And you're standing there and you can't help but be so vividly reminded day one and day two why we're standing in this line. It's not just laundry day for the exodus. We're all out here doing consecration because we believe the promise that the third day is coming and because we fear the warning about our reverential approach just to get close. Doug Stewart writes this. By the third day, the people were consecrated and ready for one of the Bible's greatest encounters with the true God. And the awesomeness of his presence. The truth is, God is awesomely holy. Habakkuk 1.13 says that God is too holy to look at sin in his presence. God is terribly holy. God is fiercely holy. Our God is the ancient of days. There is no comparable. Even if we had something in our society that gave us glimpses of it, it would woefully pale in comparison 
commands the people, clean up just to get a little closer. Now, but I, like I told you before, they get a little closer because they obey the stuff he says and they get a little closer. They don't seem to step over the boundary. But they're not nearly as close as all of those people who are with him today in heaven. So what I want to say to you is please don't hear from these verses that Exodus is a lesson on consecrating yourself, doing the laundry, abstaining from physical activities so that you can be with God. Yet, there are so many people more willing to take this approach to access with God than the one we see throughout the New Testament. What is access to God? Who will mediate? Who will be our representative? And so people come still today and say, okay, I I think I can do it. I think I can clean myself up. And I just want to say before I move away from this point into the meeting with God, that if if you're sitting here right now and you're listening to me preach the Bible and and your hope, your hope is, I've done more good than bad. No, that's not true at all. James 2.10 says, if you kept all of God's law, which remember I just said is from Genesis or from, or from Exodus 20 to Leviticus 17, and if you were the person who got it all right, except one point, you're guilty of all of it. James 2.10. If you kept all of it and just defended in one point, you're guilty of all of it. And so therefore, the Bible can safely say that all have transgressed, all have fallen short of being with him in glory. And if you're here and you're still saying, I can clean myself up, I just want you to know you can't. And I want you to delight. I want you to delight in your hopelessness. Because God has made a way for sinners, which is Jesus Christ. So if you're sitting here and you're saying, I'm trying, I'm doing... I'm doing, some days I have bad days, and I'm trying, I'm trying. I want to tell you, stop trying and run to salvation in Christ. Look to his work, living sinlessly, law-keeping at every point. Dying substitutionally, where I should have died because I've, I've, I've rebelled against God, and the punishment for my rebellion is death. But he died but couldn't be kept by the grave. The grave, our most formidable opponent, couldn't hold on to the sinless Messiah. And so he comes forth from the dead in victory. And his resurrection is our resurrection to eternal life. And so I I just, I want to make sure as I move away, this is not a lesson in how to clean yourself up so you can get to God. In fact, I would contend that what we see here in this passage is this vivid reminder that these people don't clean themselves up to get to God. They don't clean themselves up, and they don't get to God. Not the way we hope for in life in heaven. Let me go to the third one, which is meeting with God. God lovingly says, hey, uh, you will be a special people. I'll have, I'll have some confines that define our relationship. You'll be like this, and I'll be your God. And then the people are like, yes, we will. And what do you want us to do? Well, get ready. And you can come this far. Okay, we will. And then 
16 through 25. Now, I want you to do this. However you paint this picture in your head, I want you to see the Sinai Peninsula, okay? If you need to go, if you need to go to the back pages of your Bible, I want you to see the Sinai Peninsula, right? Pointing right down. It's like an arrow pointing to the south in your Bible map. And if you want to go see it, that's great. Go see it. The Sinai Peninsula. I think it's reasonable. Mount Sinai is somewhere in that radius. And if, if you see that area, I want you to see in your imagination, I want you to see this arid desert. I want you to see this place where there is a significant protruding mountain known as the mountain of God. And there are scores of people set up to camp. I'm not positive how far away. Be careful. Be careful that you don't assume that the camp is like, like people walk out of their tents and they're like elevation. Okay? There's probably some distance between the mountain and the camp. Probably some significant distance. Which means, by the way, that Moses is running back and forth. He's probably spending a couple hours getting back and forth. I want you to see it because I want you to do your best with, with the scriptures leading to see what's said here about meeting with God. Okay, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. They were shaking. If you get nervous or fearful and your hands start to shake or maybe you feel a leg start to shake, thunder and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain. I'm going to suggest there's a vivid literal interpretation of that. This giant rock is experiencing something known as a storm theophany. That is, God appearing in storm form. And I'm also going to suggest, that think about it, think about times where God appears to his people. God appears to his people. When is, okay, okay, when does God appear to his people? All right, let's talk about Elijah. Elijah's like, ah, everyone else has abandoned you. I'm by myself. I'm hiding out in this cave. I'm going to die for sure. Exodus, or 1 Kings chapter 19. The Bible says God appears in a wind that tore a mountain to pieces. A mountain to pieces. God shows up to Job in Job 38. And the Bible says God showed up in a tornado and said, Who are you who dilutes counsel with your words? In Isaiah 29, Isaiah announces the coming of the Lord and says that it will be like thunder, earthquake, tornado, and consuming fire. Not figuratively, that's what you see when God shows up. Ezekiel's revelation of the Lord's presence in Ezekiel 1, he says it's like a strong wind in a dark cloud with radiant light all around it and fire flashing back and forth inside constantly. The Lord appeared in front of them 
and they saw a dark cloud. They hear this horn blowing. And it's not like this really, I don't know how many of you do this, but you try to have a, a subtle alarm at home. Because you know the one that's so startling, you jump and your back hurts the rest of the day because you jump so hard when the alarm goes off. And so you try to do this. I had, a, I had an alarm once that would do this really gradual alarm. And so you could almost barely hear it. It was faint. And then it would get a little louder and a little louder and a little louder. And it was such a nice way to wake up. This alarm gets louder and louder and louder and louder. And the people are trembling. And from wherever the camp is to wherever the boundary at the bottom of the mountain is, they start walking toward the trumpet. Toward the smoke. Look at verse 18. The text literally reads, As for Mount Sinai, smoke, comma, all of it. I'm going to propose that it's possible that what the people saw is what the psalmist says happens before the holiness of God. Mountains melt like wax. I'm going to propose that this is not like some rain cloud that just got really low and kind of surrounded the mountain because that's really domesticated and frankly, perhaps comfortable depiction, but I don't think it's true of Exodus 19. I think we should ask ourselves, did this mountain become like smoke? Did this mountain become malleable? Pliable? Did it become wavy in front of them? Well, fire had ascended, uh, descended on the mountain. The entire mountain, look at the rest of 18 and 19, the entire mountain shook and trembled greatly. They didn't just see a cloud around a mountain. They saw a mountain turn to smoke and quiver in front of them because God was there. 19, the verse, the verse says, the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses was speaking and God was answering him in thundering. Moses becomes known as the prophet who stood face to face with God. Trumpet blowing. Mountains are like smoke quivering at the presence of God. Thunder and lightning is crashing and the people are walking forward as a group for maybe, maybe hours, maybe minutes toward what is terrifying. Moses is called up to talk with God again. Verse 20. God descends, Moses ascends, to the place where they meet. And then verse 21 and 22, God tells Moses to go back down and warn the people to be respectful of the boundary. Don't step over, go back and tell the people, don't step over the boundary. Look at verse 22. Moses is like, uh, 23. Moses is like, you told them, it'll be fine. Now, again, I speculate I imagine the narrative 
But maybe Moses has gotten really weary of back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And so God now says, listen, remember I told them if they step over the boundary, they're going to die. So would you just go back down and warn them? And Moses goes, ah, they heard you the first time. Now here's what I want you to know about that. The only reason that's important at all is because I need you to see that this fiercely, holy, terrifying God loved those people more than Moses did. We read this story, and there are a lot of occasions where we look at Moses and go, good job, Moses. You're like the one guy in all the people who seems to get it right. And I need you to see that God loves these people more than Moses does. Go back down and remind them of the danger. They heard you. It's fine. And maybe he thought in his sinful heart, and if we lose a couple, it's less work for me. I don't know. God says, no. I want you to go down. I want you to go down and stand back in the congregation. Because you've, you've been helpful to remind the people of representative. But now I want you to go stand with them while I say the commands. Because you're actually one of them. And he says, when you come back, which they do, they, they come back later, I believe it's in 24. He says, next time you come up, uh, bring Aaron too. So Moses went down to the people and he told them. This is just a simple way to end the pre-law portion. Moses and the people standing together outside the boundary that was appointed for them, the place they couldn't get any closer. You've consecrated yourself. You can't come any closer than this, though. And they stand here ready to hear God's command of covenant thundered to them from the God of the mountain himself. I suppose what I want you to understand is maybe a play on words. And that is from the title, The Mountain of God. Maybe what I want you to see most is that our God is a towering mountain. Exodus 19 is a story for us about God giving his law to Israel. And Exodus 19 is about God. The testimony of how the people received the covenant instruction for their relationship with God starts with who God is. Next Sunday, we have the opportunity to hear, I think we're at something like nine, nine. We get the opportunity, Kenzie says, to hear nine testimonies next Sunday. Nine people in church are going to testify to what they believe true about the gospel as their hope for everlasting life. Nine people. Some of them in baptism, and some of them in candidacy for membership. Nine. And I'm going to preach the Ten Commandments. I'm not, though. I'm going to talk about the nature of commandment giving from a father. And we get to hear nine testimonies. And as I met with some of those young people who want to be baptized, 
I, I want you to know, as you hear it next week, I want you to listen for this. I said, I said, please don't think what we want you to give us is a history lesson. We don't want to look back to the time when you were six and you felt convicted of your sin and you went to your parents and they told you about Jesus, the Savior. I said, that's a great day and it's worth talking about, but that's not what we mean when we say testify. We mean come in front of the congregation, take the stand and answer this question. Is Jesus your only hope in life and death? And, I, and it, please don't start it with well, when I was six. And so I've been reading through those kids' testimonies this week. And in the first sentence, it talks about God. Well, God. And in Exodus 19, God. Gave his law to Israel. And in that covenant making, there was a way made for the people to come a little closer. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus says to the young lawyer, remember when the lawyer like, tried to quiz Jesus? What's, what's the best? What's the best command? What's the, what's the big deal command? And Jesus answers the question and or it turns the question back to the lawyer, and the lawyer gives an answer. Well, love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus says, you're close. I perceive that you're not too far out of the kingdom, but you're out of the kingdom. Exodus 19 is a group of people who are cleaning themselves up, getting themselves ready for law-keeping, and we would hear the word of Jesus say, you're not too far away from the kingdom. But Exodus 19 isn't going to be your hope in life and death. You can only come this far. So would you please take your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. And the author in Hebrews draws the people's attention back to this day when they stood trembling at the base of the mountain. And let's start reading in... I want to start a little earlier... And what I had noted. Yeah, I want to go all the way up to 18. Exodus, I'm sorry. Hebrews 12, 18. Covenants. Covenants matter. Your marriage covenant matters. God's covenants throughout Scripture matter. But some are better. The author of Hebrews talks about covenants that matter and covenants that are better. Hebrews twelve eighteen, You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest, the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. That's coming up in Exodus. They could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touched the mountain, it should be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have not come to Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels, in festal gathering and to the assembly 
of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirit of the righteous made perfect. To Jesus, the mediator of new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Consecrate yourself, and you can come this close. And Jesus himself says, you won't be far out of the kingdom of heaven. But the blood of Christ speaks a better covenant. Verse 28. So we're still in Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, let us... And here's, here's what I want to say to you. As, you. as you stand up and as you go, I want you to do this. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. And whether it's Exodus 19 or Hebrews 12, the mountain is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thunder, lightning, loud blast of trumpet, thundering communication, darkness, mountains, granite, quaking like smoke, still the same. And the blood of the covenant of Jesus Christ bids us come up to the mountain and speak, Abba, Father. Let's pray. God, thank you for not withholding the revelation of who you are. We confess that our perceptions are so finite. We struggle so much to see grandeur. We're just, we're always intoxicated with trivial and insignificant buffoonery that then when we behold the mountain quaking, we struggle. But you are patient and long-suffering. And all of our self-righteousness would grant us access to perceive not welcome us to come in. And a much better covenant, Father, you have given us in Christ. So let us let us come grateful. Let us come knowing that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And then to offer you acceptable worship with reverence and awe. To be granted fellowship in Christ with what is consuming fire. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we pray to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and let's sing and rejoice together.